everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and this is a special bonus episode to celebrate Pride Month. It's a show that focuses exclusively on the Victorian era in crime. We cannot gloss over the fact that many facets of LGBTQ plus lifestyles were in fact considered criminal during the time period. And as I share this brief history with you, you may find yourself thinking, wow, thank goodness things aren't like this anymore. But do not for a second make the mistake that LGBTQ plus people are safe living in today's society, okay? There are a lot of opportunities this month, especially for you to learn about and support LGBTQ plus people. So with that, please enjoy this special bonus episode on the Victorians and LGBTQ plus pride. So right out of the gate, we have to candidly talk about how lawmakers are obsessed with trying to control very consensual, very private acts, starting in 1861 when England amends the Offenses Against the Person Act to remove the death sentence for sodomy, or what they called buggery. The sentence was changed to 10 years to life imprisonment instead. In the late 1860s, Frederick William Park and Thomas Ernest Bolton began performing in theaters and in private in-home performances dressed in drag as Fanny and Stella. Their performance troupe toured Britain and they were always listed under their given names in theater programs with no concealment to the audience that Fanny and Stella were played by two men. Their act also included an onstage kiss that never incited any complaints from the audience or press. The pair shared a flat and would regularly go out in public dressed as their Fanny and Stella alter egos, including eating at restaurants, going shopping, and attending theater and music halls. Many who saw them in public simply believed them to be women. In 1868, Lord Arthur Clinton joined their performance, taking on various male roles. Prior to joining the group, he was known for being an aristocrat and liberal party politician who was elected as a member of parliament for Newark before declaring bankruptcy and standing down in the 1868 election. He was also rather openly, I believe, in a relationship with Bolton slash Stella for about a year. Stella referred to herself as Clinton's wife and even had cards printed reading Lady Arthur Clinton. So as you can imagine, the cross-dressing in public ruffles some feathers, and police had already been surveilling a pair for over a year, when on the evening of April 28, 1870, Bolton and Park, both in drag, attend a show at the Strand Theater. After the performance, while the pair were exiting the theater, they were arrested and subjected to physical examinations to confirm police suspicion that they engaged in anal sex. The examinations confirmed they had, so they say, and charges were brought forth against Bolton, Park, and a number of their friends that were identified during the investigation, including Lord Arthur Clinton. Clinton would die before the case had a chance to go to trial, though, reportedly from scarlet fever, but many also believe by suicide, considering the circumstances. When the case reaches the court, though, physical examinations were found to be unreliable as a source of proof that any homosexual offenses had been committed, and further, the prosecution failed to prove that wearing women's clothing was any sort of crime at all, and all charged were found not guilty. Applause and cheers are elicited from the public gallery at the reading of the verdict. Following the trial, both returned to performing around Britain and New York, but it doesn't seem they ever revived their Fanny and Stella act. There was another scandal in 1880, which one source I used called a big and improper Victorian drag ball. Can we bring that back? That sounds amazing. 
So the police get word of this secret fancy dress ball, as it was called, and of course, they make plans to bust it. Despite the efforts of event organizers, which included a bouncer at the door disguised as a nun, black paper on all the windows, and even a blind accordion player, the police raid the party in the early hours of the morning and arrest a total of 47 men who they charge with soliciting and inciting each other to commit improper actions. Though most of the men were granted bail that night or simply forced to pay a bond in the form of a promise that they would carry out 12 months of good behavior, newspapers took it upon themselves to print the names of all 47 men a week later. I couldn't find any information on how this affected specific individuals, but as you can imagine, the backlash from one's family, community, and employers in these cases could be even worse than the legal consequences. Where police and lawmakers ran into roadblocks with these incidents is that they could not physically prove the men were gay or that cross-dressing was illegal. So they decided they needed stricter laws. And in 1885, Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act was changed to make, quote, gross indecency punishable by law. It was commonly known as the Leboucherie Act, named after Parliament member Henry Leboucherie. As far as I can tell, the definition of gross indecency is not spelled out in this law, but it's rather a blanket statement that covers any sexual acts between men that fall short of sex, including acts done consensually in private. The most notable case in the Victorian era prosecuted under the Leboucherie Act was that of Oscar Wilde for his relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas, as well as his relationship with other men between 1892 and 1894. He was sentenced to two years hard labor in prison, where his sentence included walking all day on a treadmill and picking apart a rope until his fingers were blistered and bleeding. But as Mr. Rogers says, look for the helpers, right? In 1897, the first gay rights organization took shape. It was started as a secret society by George Cecil Ives, who was a friend of Wilde's, and it was called the Order of Chatronea. In Ives' own words on the purpose of the order, he said, We believe in the glory of passion. We believe in the inspiration of emotion. We believe in the holiness of love. Now some in the world without have been asking us to our faith, and mostly we find that we have no answer for them. Scoffers there be to whom we need not reply, and foolish ones to whom our words would convey no meaning. For what are words, symbols of kindred comprehended conceptions, and like makes appeal to like. The Sexual Offenses Act in 1967 officially decriminalized private consensual sex between male partners in Britain, but unfortunately, a foundation of dangerous backwards thinking had already been laid for generations to come. So clearly lawmakers are very concerned with what men do with their private lives, but what about women? I was surprised to learn that romanticized relationships between women in the Victorian era were actually quite common and very accepted. There was this idea of romanticized female friendships or ideas between women, because you see, the idea of homosexuality as an identity wasn't fully formed yet. It was more about acts one commits versus how one identifies. So two women who kiss or touch or very simply have this close emotional relationship was just kind of a thing that some women did. Because our little woman brains, you know, were inferior to men's, we couldn't help but succumb to these intimate, romantic emotions we had. It was also, in fact, considered good practice for the day a woman would marry a man. Women in these pairs would often take to calling one another husband or sweet wife. There were some women who pushed these boundaries further, though, including Anne Lister, a famous English diarist whose five million word diary, kept between 1806 and 1840, was a treasure trove of information that helped preserve daily life of the time. 
She has been called the first modern lesbian, having detailed nearly two decades in a relationship with a woman named Mariana Lawton and later Anne Walker, with whom she lived as a married couple until her death. Much of her diaries that describe intimate details of her relationships were written in code that was not broken until long after her death. Anne was said to have very masculine appearance and mannerisms and always wore black, as was custom for men at the time, and took part in many activities considered solely reserved for men, like owning a coal mine. Meanwhile, in America, Alice Austin was earning her name as one of America's first female photographers to capture life outside the photography studio. Her work is notable for capturing everyday street life, but also the lesbian lifestyle of her and her friends. Alice spent 53 years in a committed relationship with a woman named Gertrude Tate. 30 of those years were spent living together in her home, which is now the Alice Austin House Museum in Staten Island, New York, at a nationally designated site of LGBTQ history. My friends, I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. If you head over to Instagram or TikTok at A Good Night for a Murder, you can see some photos of Fanny and Stella, the photography of Alice Austin, and a few more photos. Photos and all source links can also be found on the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. Plus, you can sign up for the Good Night for a Murder newsletter on the website. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like book recommendations, extra Victorian society tips, and more. I also have a Patreon. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also, follow me on Instagram or TikTok at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening. Happy Pride Month, and I will talk to you again soon. Bye.